This is the second day of this 2020 two-day online session. And we will continue reading and commenting from the book Insight Meditation by Joseph Goldstein, uh, the guiding teacher, one of the guiding teachers and founder of the uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. So this chapter is called Not Seeing Dukkha is Dukkha. Dukkha, as most people are aware, is the word for suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And he says, In order to relate well to unpleasant experience, we first must know that it's there. The non-seeing of suffering keeps us locked into the suffering. Seeing it clearly and precisely allows us to open to whatever form of suffering it is. And that opening and acceptance in turn allow the discomfort to wash through our consciousness and away. Suppose your body is carrying a lot of discomfort or tension, but you're not aware of it. You're carrying it around without knowing it. This discomfort unconsciously conditions how you are, how you feel. When that physical discomfort becomes predominant enough, you turn your attention to it. If you can open to it with acceptance, what follows is a sense of relaxation, of relief. The combined power of clear seeing plus acceptance brings the relief. The painful sensation may still be there, but now your relation to it is quite different. You relate to it now out of condition of peace rather than out of a delusion or not seeing. The same dynamic can happen equally with painful physical sensations and with painful emotions. Some time ago, a situation caused me intense embarrassment. Although I knew that I was experiencing a very uncomfortable state, I did not know just what I was feeling and until I was able to identify it, there was so much suffering. I was trying in every way I could imagine to get out of the situation causing me this pain. And after suffering for some time like this, I finally said, what is going on here? And I settled back, took a close look at my mind and saw, oh, this is the feeling of embarrassment. In that moment of clear seeing and a willingness to be with it, all of the dukkha went away. Dukkha is the Pali word for unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And I saw that embarrassment was an unpleasant feeling arising at that time out of certain conditions and that it was okay simply to feel it. And then it left. This was much easier than trying to rearrange my life to avoid the feeling. I think most of us can really relate to this and to avoidance, which we really find sometimes easier than actually recognizing what's going on with us. And recognizing those feelings in the body is important. There's a lot of work been done now on trauma and how to help people who have suffered serious abuse maybe in their childhood or have 
a post-traumatic stress disorder from having to fight in wars or, or living in circumstances that are just unbearable. And uh, much of this trauma, it's triggered by a thought, but it doesn't necessarily, the thought may not necessarily relate to what's going on right now, but it taps into a body feeling. And so if we don't recognize that, if we stuff it, um, and unfortunately, you know, we can use our practice in that same way. Um, we can use concentration as a way of actually avoiding what we need to actually experience and feel. And so um, that's why I think that certainly Roshi encourages people to do therapies and to make that um, another supporting function of, of practice. Because if we deny it, then it may come up. There's one of our Sangha members who sat 17 <laughs> seven-day sashins um, before his or their understanding of serious childhood trauma came up. So, and then of course followed several years of painful therapy, um, working with the body and and coming back to practice with this openness and this um, ability to to be present with what was actually going on. Because really our practice is, is about experience. It's not about ideas we have or concepts about what should be going on or not going on. It is experience. So to deny that is to shortchange ourselves. He goes on. It is better to do something unskillful knowing that it is unskillful than to do it without that knowledge. From the Buddhist perspective, that knowing is a seed of wisdom, a possibility of coming to understand and at some point refraining from such action. So the knowing mitigates the unwholesomeness of the action. If, on the other hand, we do not know that the action is unskillful, the mental state of delusion or ignorance compounds the unwholesomeness. The power of such ignorance is a tremendous force for suffering in the world. And you could certainly say that we can see that nowadays in the divisions in our country, in the um, painful fighting against uh, reality, the, the hatred, the... Um, compounding of racism and all of these things that if we aren't seeing clearly they just continue on and with disastrous and painful painful suffering he ends this chapter with saying all of this is to say that as you open to the different kinds of dukkha you should remain confident you are opening to understanding.
The next chapter is called Understanding Pain. And I would venture that most of us who do sashins would find that this is very relevant. He says, In the same way that we unblock our resistance to unpleasant mental and emotional experience, we also develop the liberating gift of relating skillfully to physical pain. It's important to learn about physical pain, to learn how to open to it, <clears throat> because how we relate to it in meditation is actually symptomatic of how we relate to all the unpleasant things in our life. The Buddha reminded us of a great and obvious truth when he taught that being born results inevitably in growth, decay, and death. And if we have a body, we can be certain that at times we will also have pain and illness, and we can know for sure that our body will die. Much of meditation practice is opening to this reality in a very immediate way, not merely thinking about it, but experiencing it directly and deeply. When physical pain predominates in your practice, you can try different strategies of awareness. Uh, so he gives here some tips on how to work with pain. <clears throat> First, notice the general area of sensation. For example, the knee or the back or the neck. Simply be aware of the whole area, letting your mind relax and settle into the physical sensations. Second, observe precisely the particular nature of the sensations. Are they burning, pressure, searing, tightness, piercing, twisting, or other some of other, some other variant. By noting the particular quality of what you feel, your mind becomes more concentrated. After you recognize just what it is actually there, the third step brings you even deeper. Send your awareness very precisely within the area of sensation to the exact pinpoint of greatest intensity. Notice what happens to that pinpoint of feeling. Usually it will change in some way and another pinpoint will become more, most intense. Then move your attention to that point, and then to the next, something like following the dots of intensity. And when your mind becomes tired, come back to awareness of the whole area, or even to your breath. It is usually better to go back and forth between the breath and the pain for intervals of several minutes at a time, because our mind has a tendency to wither, to pull back, to become tired when we experience long periods of intense, unpleasant feeling. And unless we work skillfully with pain, it can exhaust our mind, and then mindfulness and energy decrease. I think, um, breaking off now from, from the book, a lot of us... Um, if the pain is really too intense, it, it is discouraging to um, long-term practice and certainly to committing to, uh, to sashin. So it's very important, maybe not during a sashin, but at other times when you're working with pain, to really find ways to be comfortable with whatever's going on there. And so I know some people have found that, we're, you know, if you're aging, you, you're not going to have the same flexibility that you had when you were, say, 20 or even 30 or even 40. So uh, adaptation is not, um, it's not a giving in. It's not 
a lack of warrior mentality. It's simply adjusting to what is with some reasonable um, expectation that discomfort is going to be just part of this process of having the body keep still. And we use this stillness of the body because when your body is still, the mind tends to settle. The thoughts tend to diminish. So uh, this working with pain is extremely important. And um, there's a lot of help now with, with this. There's every week the center offers Finding Your Seat, which is uh, uh, online right now, but it's uh, interaction with um, people who've been meditating, senior students of Roshi's who've been meditating for a long time and have had experience with helping uh, people find better ways to be more comfortable sitting so that then the concentration can develop. Um, that being said, though, concentration is intensified when we have pain. There's nowhere else your mind can go if you're really in pain. So um, working with that is also another way of intensifying uh, the concentration. So going back to Joseph. This alternation he was talking about between breath and en entering with the pain develops energy in another way as well. When pain is strong, the mind at first inclines to it without much mental exercise. It seldom wanders. Because we do not have to make much effort to stay with the pain, the mental quality of energy in our mind may become weaker. But if we come back to the breath at times, even when the pain is predominant, then a strong intentionality of effort develops. Then when we again observe the pain, we experience it on a very different level. This crucial buildup of momentum deepens our practice. It acts like a particle accelerator in nuclear physics. The particles go faster and faster until they are able to split atoms. In meditation practice, we build the energy of awareness until it grows powerful enough to see entirely different levels of reality. Such increasing momentum comes from continuity of awareness and the periodic effort to return to the primary object of our meditation. Shepherding the mind back in a tender way, we conserve and build energy until we can tap the power within us to realize deeper levels of understanding. The next chapter is called Feeling Good, Feeling Bad, Progress in Meditation. Our entrenched programming to avoid pain and to grasp at pleasure shows up in our practice in yet another major way we too often misunderstand meditation by believing that if it feels good, we're doing well, and if it hurts, we are failing. If we have a painful sitting, the meditation is not going, quote, right, but if the feelings are pleasant, light, soft, floating, tingling, then we are successful meditators. All of us find such conditioning very hard to drop. The source of our error is simple but tenacious. We like feeling good 
and we do not like it when it hurts. Our progress in meditation does not depend on the measure of pleasure or pain in our experience. Rather, the quality of our practice has to do with how open we are to whatever is there. I'll say that again. The quality of our practice has to do with how open we are to whatever is there. He goes on. As the path of insight unfolds, we go through certain stages of practice where painful feelings predominate. That is just what characterizes those stages. Pleasant, rapturous, very light, clear, or very serene feelings predominate at other stages. And these experiences arise simply because we are in those particular places of practice. The liberating path leads through many such cycles, and the pleasantness or unpleasantness of any particular experience does not in itself determine how advanced any given stage is. We could be in a later stage of pain in which the practice is deeper than it was at an earlier stage of bliss. So pleasant or unpainful feelings do not indicate how well your practice is going. The goals we seek through practice are wisdom and compassion, not some permanent tingle. How long it takes for many of us to learn this one. I will tell you a sad little meditation story. During a time when I was doing intensive practice for a couple of months in India, my whole body dissolved into radiant vibrations of light. Every time I sat down, as soon as I closed my eyes, this energy field of light pervaded my whole body. It was wonderful. It felt terrific. Ah, I got it. After those months in India, I went back to America for a while. And when I returned to India, I fully expected my body of light to travel back with me. I began sitting intensively again, but the radiant vibrations were gone. Not only was there no longer a body of light, but my body felt like a painful mass of twisted steel. As I sat and tried to move my attention through that tight and twisted block, there was so much pressure and tension, so many unpleasant sensations. The next two years were the most frustrating and difficult period of my practice. Why? Because I was not really being mindful. I believed I was being with the pain and unpleasantness, but actually I was not accepting them, not fully opening to things just as they are. In truth, I was practicing in order to get something back. That pleasant, vibrating body of light. It took me two years finally to realize that the idea in practice is not to get anything back, no matter how wonderful it might be. In fact, this practice, um, this is not from the book, but this practice is, is giving because in giving we're not aware of ourselves. It's not a taking thing. A taking would be to get something for me. When you fully give, there's no me there. You're just one with the person or with the thing that you're 
um, that you're doing, there's no self then. But our whole lives are so con- constricted around our self, me, um, and it's not even it's not even that we're being greedy actually it's just a habit of self-reference um, so it's good to recognize that we're not practicing in order to get something and okay so you had a great experience um, you were one with the trees or you you suddenly saw the uh, incredible beauty of of some experience and you whatever that experience was you have to uh, you want to get back to it because oh that was really something you know that was inside that's what I need that's what I should have that's where I'm trying to go to but holding on to the experience is the actual opposite of what the experience meant at the time The experience came about from a letting go, not from hanging on. And that's the opposite of clinging mind. This word surrender can be very powerful. There used to be a a song, of course, I'm a Second World War baby, so I can remember... Hearing this song, but um, and I won't sing it, but it was um, the end of it was lay down your arms and surrender to mine. Now, of course, that was in the context of love and so forth, but um, this surrender has such a beautiful into the arms of something that has outside of ourselves, you know, but it's actually ourself. So, he goes on. What we have experienced in the past is gone. It's dead. It's a corpse. And we do not have to drag the corpse along with us. We practice to open to what is present, whatever it happens to be. It tingles, it's light, it's twisted steel, It doesn't matter. When I finally understood that truth, after two years of painful struggle, my practice again began to unfold. You need not take two years to figure it out. Be watchful that you are not holding on to some past experience that you're trying to recreate. That is not correct practice. It is a sure setup for suffering. Simply be open. Be soft. Be mindful with whatever is presenting itself. This is the path to freedom. The next chapter we're going to do is called Relating to Thoughts. Meditation is not thinking about things. The thinking or discursive level of mind pervades our lives, consciously or unconsciously, We all spend much or most of our time there, and most of our lives there. But meditation is a different process that does not involve discursive thought or reflection. 
because meditation is not thought through the continuous process of silent observation or concentration, new kinds of understanding emerge. For the purpose of meditation, nothing is particularly worth thinking about. Not our childhood, not our relationships, not the great novel we always wanted to write. This does not mean that such thoughts will not come. In fact, they may come with tremendous frequency. We do not need to fight with them or struggle against them or judge them. Rather, we can simply choose not to follow the thoughts once we are aware that they have arisen. The quicker we notice that we are thinking, the quicker we can see thoughts empty nature. Um, one tip he gives, I think it's not in this book, but I think it can be helpful, is to, when, when a thought comes up, and particularly one of these recurring circular thoughts, to say something like, um, in the mind, not now, not now not now. Um, what that does is it doesn't discredit or discount the thought that maybe needs to be attended to, uh, but it, it allows us to put it aside, put it up on the luggage rack, if you like, um, knowing that at another time we might need to work with it. But it's very simple, just just a couple of words. Instead of what we usually do, which is, oh, darn it, there I go thinking again. Um, and then we're off on a whole new narrative and story. So you might try that, see if it's helpful. Our thoughts are often seductive, and meditation may pass quickly when we sit and daydream. Before we know it, the hour has passed. It may have been quite an enjoyable sitting, but it was not meditation. We need to be aware of this sidetrack in practice <clears throat> and remember that the kind of wisdom we want to develop comes intuitively and spontaneously from silent awareness. I'll say that over again because I think it's really helpful. We need to be aware of this sidetrack in practice and remember that the kind of wisdom we want to develop comes intuitively and spontaneously from silent awareness. This silent awareness that the mind is essentially silent um, Ramana Maharshi, the wonderful um, Indian teacher, uh, in one of his sayings was that the mind is essentially silent. And in practice, it is to see how the I is the first thing that arises out of that silence. Most of our lives we spend identifying with that I. We don't go back far enough. But in Sashin we settle, we experience this silent awareness. And, um, yeah, and that's huge encouragement.
There's another Indian teacher called Nizagadatta, and um, he was in the same Advaita tradition as Ramana Maharshi. And um, somebody was asking him about what is consciousness, which in our in Zen we would call what is our true nature. And he says this. The source of consciousness cannot be an object in consciousness. To know the source is to be the source. When you realize you are not the person, but the pure and calm witness, and that fearless awareness is your very being, you are the being. It is the source, the inexhaustible possibility. Fearless awareness. Although meditation, back to Joseph, although meditation is not thinking, nevertheless it can be clear awareness of thinking. Thought can be a very useful object of meditation. We can turn the great power of observation onto thought itself in order to learn about its inherent nature, becoming aware of its process instead of getting lost in its content. In Dharma teaching, we speak frequently about the powerful impact of identifying with phenomena, with objects. Identification imprisons us in the content of our conditioning. One of the easiest ways to understand this imprisonment is to observe the difference between being lost in thought and being mindful of it. When we lose ourselves in thought, identification is strong. Thought sweeps up our mind and carries it away. And in a very short time, we can be carried far indeed. We hop a train of associations without knowing that we have hopped on and certainly not knowing the destination. This is an important... Um, people sometimes will say, oh, you know, I, 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 I mean, I was going... I had just lost in my thoughts. and You know, most of the round I was lost in my thoughts, and, you know, and then I suddenly come to. Um, but instead of the criticism, we should just say, wow, great, I've suddenly woken up. And that's your cue. That's the, that's the, uh, that awareness is, is working all, uh, right along and it brings us back. It's the opportunity. So rather than feeling critical of the fact that we, we were lost in thought, it's to be so grateful uh, that we woke up. And then we know what we have to do. Just breathe, just do the move, the who, the, the awareness. Uh, and, and so let's have that attitude of, of gratitude for um, how this meditation practice is working for us. What are thoughts? This is back to the book. What is this phenomenon that so powerfully conditions our lives when we remain unaware of it, yet dissolves so completely as soon as we pay attention? 
What is our proper relationship to that endless display of thoughts parading through our mind? Take a few moments right now to look directly at the thoughts arising in your mind. You might close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting in a movie theater watching an empty screen. Simply wait for thoughts to arise. And because you're not doing anything except waiting for thoughts to appear, you may become aware of them very quickly. What exactly are they? What happens to them? They're like magic displays that seem real when we are lost in them, but then they vanish upon inspection. But what about the strong thoughts that affect us? In meditation, we are concentrating, 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 and then all of a sudden, gone. We're lost in that one. What is that about? What are the mind states or the particular kinds of thoughts that catch us again and again so that we forget that they are just empty phenomena passing on, passing through? The Buddha said that we are shaped, created, and led by our thoughts. If he was right, then it's important for us to watch our thought process closely to see where we get hooked, where we are seduced through identification into creating something that brings us unhappiness. It is amazing to observe how much power we give unknowingly to uninvited thoughts. Do this, say that, remember, plan, obsess, judge, and they can drive us quite crazy, and they often do. It takes a lot of alertness to stay aware of thoughts. They are extremely slippery. If you watch them in one place, they sneak in from another. But as practice evolves, two liberating things happen. First, our mind actually becomes quieter. Instead of being a rushing torrent, thoughts come less frequently and we enjoy an increasing sense of calm and inner peace. Second, our observing power becomes quicker and stronger. We can see thoughts much more clearly and are taken for fewer unconscious rides. Without identifying with thoughts and giving them power, our mind abides in the natural state of ease, simplicity and peace. The next chapter is called Views and Opinions. Once we begin watching our thoughts closely, we notice a strong propensity to identify with a particular class of thinking, namely views and opinions. It's useful to discriminate between having views and opinions and being attached to them. When people first recognize that strong attachment to views can create separation, division and conflict, they sometimes conclude that we should not have views and opinions at all. But this can lead us into a difficult bind, since eliminating them proves to be quite impossible. The task of freeing the mind involves not identifying so strongly with the particular opinions we hold. How can we do this? To see how you identify with views, try paying careful attention to your feeling states as you proceed through the day. I'm just going to break off here for a second. Uh, he mentioned before about intuition and feeling, and uh, it's important for us to 
mm. be aware of intuition and feeling um, because if we do a lot of talking a lot of thinking a lot of um, interacting uh, we tend to get separated from our intuitive our intuitive mind okay back to Joseph as you go along you may be thinking of various things when all of a sudden some opinion arises about a personal situation if you identify with that opinion, instead of seeing it simply as it is, an arising thought in your mind, and then watch for a noticeable tightening of your mind around it, a charge, a sense of being right, these things that contract us into a space of small mind and separation. If we pay attention to when that tightening takes place, when the charge in the mind begins to happen, then the contraction becomes a signal that we have gone from a place of having an opinion to a place of attachment to it. We are using the radar of mindfulness to pick up times of suffering, of unease, of constriction. Like any practice, this psychic early warning system gets better the more you use it. Things may be going along very smoothly, and then, presto, you pick up a certain glitch on the screen, you feel in your mind and body a sense of solidifying around something. That moment of feeling the glitch is the place to stop. Right here in consciousness at this moment is a precious gift, a signal telling you something is happening. You are getting caught. If we can unhook from our attachment to views and opinions, we can then be freer in having them. We can consider more dispassionately the whole of any given situation. We can receive more respectfully other points of view, which in turn creates a situation of greater openness and communication. In this way, liberation is not always dramatic fireworks. It can be the step-by-step, moment-by-moment freeing of our mind. And I think in, in this time when there is so much division in the country, we uh, need to learn to listen um, respectfully, to be open in the way that he is recommending here. listening, not identifying, not fighting back. And actually, I know there's a lot of political discussion now nowadays, and, and you can feel it in yourself. You're getting into a talk with somebody, they don't feel or think quite like you do, and you can feel this um, feeling in your gut, this tightening of your body. And that is what he's talking about here, the wake-up opportunity to just um, being present, not having not jumping in with with your own view or and being patient um, the next chapter is thank you boredom like anger and other emotions boredom most often f fools us into diverting our energies entirely to an external situation thus it keeps us from liberating ourselves by seeing our relationship to the emotion itself 
We make a great mistake about boredom when we think that it comes because of a particular person or situation or activity. So much of the restlessness in our meditation practice and in our daily lives derives from this fundamental misunderstanding. How often do we try to find something new to recapture new to recapture our interest, something more stimulating or more exciting? And how often does that too quickly become boring and dull so that we range off again looking for yet another something better? To realize that boredom does not come from the object of our attention but rather from the quality of our attention is truly a transforming insight. Fritz Perls, one of those who brought Gestalt therapy to America, said, Boredom is lack of attention. Understanding this reality brings profound changes in our lives. Then boredom becomes a tremendously useful feedback for us. It's telling us not that the situation or person or meditation object is somehow lacking, but rather that our attention at that time is half-hearted. Instead of wallowing in boredom or complaining about it, we can see it as a friend saying to us, pay more attention, get closer, listen more carefully. The next time you feel a lack of interest, instead of simply drowning in boredom, use it as a signal to bring your attention very close. In doing that, you will see how acuity of attention brings interest and energy. Marcel Marceau, the wonderful French mime, does an act in which he goes from standing to either sitting or lying down. He changes his position completely, but you never see him stir. His increments of movement are so small that you never see any movement. Now he is standing. Now he is sitting. Try doing that, moving as slowly as possible, and see if you are bored. Impossible precisely because it demands such close attention. When we are with people and feeling bored, we can listen a little more carefully, stepping off the train of our own inner comments. And if we are sitting in meditation and feel uninterested, can we come in closer to the object? Not with force, but with gentleness and care. What is this experience we call the breath? If someone were holding your head under water, would the breath be boring? Each breath is actually sustaining our life. Can we be with it fully, just once? When we recognize what boredom is, it becomes a great call to awaken. A word he used in this in this particular chapter, half-heartedness. I know we've all, I certainly myself, um, have periods when, yeah, 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 you know, we're practicing, but it's pretty half-hearted, sort of lazy, you know, as if we were going to live forever. But we don't know. Life is uncertain, especially... Now it's right in our faces, you know. Life is uncertain. Will we be here tomorrow? We just don't know. So being half-hearted is, or half-hearted, is um, 
Yeah. Being wholehearted means that we put our whole self, all body-mind, into whatever we're doing. The last uh, chapter we'll get to today, it's a short one, and it's called Ego and Self. I'm including this one because... um, Of the three characteristics of human existence, the first being impermanence, the second being suffering, the the third is anatta, no self. And there's so much misunderstanding around it that I think he offers a little bit of insight that people might find helpful. Here we go. In a sense, we can see most of the Buddha's teaching as a subtle and profound psychology of freedom. They explore the mind in depth, and describe how mind creates our world, our body, our actions, even our physical environment and the events that happen to us. If the Dharma is a spiritual psychology, how does it relate to Western concepts of the mind? Treating Buddhist and Western psychology together makes a vast topic, and here I would like to just touch on a few distinctions that may be important to people interested. One such distinction is an apparent contradiction between Buddhist and Western concepts of ego and self. The Dharma teaches that reality is egoless, absent of self, while Western psychology speaks of the need to build a strong ego structure, a healthy self. That apparent contradiction can be confusing, but this dilemma comes only from our use of language. We use the words ego and self one way in Western psychology and another way in the Buddhist teaching. In Western psychology, ego or self refers to a certain kind of balance and strength in the mind. Having a strongly developed ego in that sense is essential to our basic well-being. We have to have that balance in order to function in the world as harmonious human beings. People with an underdeveloped or misperceived sense of self cannot operate well in the world or be at peace with themselves. The Buddha's use of the word self is different from this concept of balance or mental-emotional maturity. When he refers to self, he's talking about an idea or concept we hold of an unchanging essence to whom experience is happening. So when he talks about the absence of self or anatta in Pali, he means understanding that experience does not refer back to anything, to anyone. Excuse me. Understanding that experience does not refer back to anyone. And this is the crucial transformative understanding that grows so deep in our practice. Insight means seeing clearly and deeply that everything in the mind and the body is a changing process and that there is no one behind it to whom it's happening. The thought is the thinker. There is no thinker apart from the thought itself. It is anger that is angry and feeling that feels. Everything is just what it is and only what it is. Experience does not belong to anyone. It is precisely that extra and mistaken process of referral back to someone, to some notion of a core being, that creates what the Buddha called I. We superimpose an idea of self on top of a reality that is actually selfless and egoless. 
process of both developing a strong ego structure and seeing the selfless nature of experience are quite complementary. A healthy sense of self develops through learning to see clearly and accepting all the different parts of who we are. Realizing the emptiness of self comes from not adding the burden of identification with those parts. Self-acceptance is really an aspect of mindfulness. Being mindful means we are willing to experience all emotions, thoughts, sensations, and events of life. This acceptance creates a strong foundation of confidence because we heal the internal split by learning to be with the whole package. But sometimes a feeling of struggle occurs in practice because something is going on in the body, in the emotions, or in thoughts that we cannot open to. We do not like certain emotions, anger, unworthiness, depression, despair, loneliness, boredom, abandonment, or fear. We may find it difficult to accept that shadow side of ourself. When these feelings come up and we find ourselves struggling, it is not because of what they are, but because of our unwillingness to, to the, at that time to be accepting. When we can accept, we can then bring a very focused awareness to seeing the impermanent, momentary nature of all these parts of ourselves. We can see that all the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and sensations are momentary, constantly in flux. We can be with them without identification and see that they do not belong to anyone. They are simply transient phenomena arising and passing away. So insight into anatta, into selflessness, grows out of self-acceptance. We'll stop now and recite <clears throat> the four vows. <clears throat> 